Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, nothing's going on with our program here. I don't know. I got a strange tone on my phone. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to continue here and hope that it just gets better, and if it doesn't, I'll just terminate the show. So, they appointed Bill Beardsley as as the director of this council that was going to come up with a an amended bill. And Bill got to got to uh, Bill got to appoint these people. So when he did that, he appointed 12 people to this council. And he appointed nine people with close ties to the environmental industry and three people that would pretty much do as they're told. Didn't have any particular position on these matters and they just kind of filled in the blanks. And those 12 people came up with a with a bill that that instead of abolishing work made work bigger, stronger, and meaner. And wrote an op-ed for the newspapers. It actually was published in some of Maine's newspapers. The uh, Lewiston Sun Journal published it, and it was titled "Bigger, Stronger, and Meaner." And I titled it that because you you got a guy that's that's a big bully. He beats the stuffings out of somebody just because he didn't like them. And he goes to jail for five years. And, it, you know, the Department of Corrections doesn't do a lot of correcting. They, they salvage a few human beings, and, and they come out to society reformed and ready to go back to work. But some of these people work in the, <laughs> go to the weight room. And when they come out of jail, they're resentful. And they're bigger, stronger, and meaner. That's what happened to Maine. Work became Loopsy. They changed the name, and that was it. The Land Use Regulation Commission became the Land Use Planning Commission. And they've come up with their vision. Anytime a government bureaucrat has a vision, it's not a blessing from heaven, I'll tell you. And they want to... <clears throat> They have a vision for northern Maine, and they want to limit subdivisions so that the subdivision has to be within let me let me back up one second. A guy owns a forty acre lot he wants the family to be able to build on this forty acre lot, so he wants to split the lot up into eight five-acre lots or five eight-acre lots or some such thing and deed them to his nieces and nephews and his cousins and his brothers and sisters, whatever. Anybody that's interested can own this lot. They can put a driveway in there and just park their camper and have a, you know, sit around the fire, talk in the evening. It's, It's a peaceful thing to be out in the woods and have a campfire. And have your friends sitting around the campfire. It just warms the heart. Good for the soul. Human beings have been doing this for thousands of years. It's a way to reconnect with with things that are important in life. Well, the loopsy, the old lurk, bigger, stronger, and meaner, has decided that if you're going to do a subdivision, it has to be within 15 minutes of an ambulance service. That eliminates everything between the Route 11 and the Canadian border. Six million acres of land where 
you don't have, you're not within 15 minutes of an ambulance service. You're not within an hour of an ambulance service. And in the wintertime, you're stuck. <laughs> People go out and they spend the winter in your cabin, and they their vehicle uh, is out by the state road somewhere or at a friend's house, and then they go back and forth by snowmobile. Ambulance service is not going to come in there. If you have a heart attack, you're probably not going to make it. You go into this situation knowing that. This is where I want to spend the rest of my life, and I don't know when the last day is going to be. Lots of people do that in Maine. And it's good. They make their choice. They want to live out the way our pioneer forefathers lived. Self-sufficient. Very creative, inventive, good, honest, hard-working people. Many of them have seasonal jobs. They guide in, in the summertime. Some of them guide in the wintertime. Work in the woods. They'll have various skills, such as welders, and everybody knows that this guy is a welder, and he can fix stuff. It's just the way it is in rural Maine. The functionaries down in Augusta don't understand rural Maine. So I... Went to this meeting. They had a. They had had various meetings. They allegedly had one in Millinocket, but nobody could find the meeting. I couldn't find the meeting. I can put my hand on a rusty iron pin sticking out of the ground anywhere in the state of Maine, but I could not find that lurk meeting two weeks ago. A loopsie. Anyway, I didn't make that one. So I made the one Thursday night this past week in Augusta. Excuse me, in Bangor quite similar to Augusta. And it was held in the county courthouse. Well, you can't carry a sidearm in the county courthouse, so you got to park somewhere off the property and go in there. And you can't, put, you can't have a jackknife in the county courthouse. Well, you know, you kind of empty your pockets, and then you go in there to this public meeting. So I went in. And they had some handouts. And most of the people that go to these meetings are are friendly to oopsie, environmentalists. They were there in numbers. And there were a few residents of the unorganized territories. And they asked, does anybody here reside in the unorganized territories? Three people raised their hand. And I don't reside in the unorganized territories. I can see it but I'm 150 yards outside that line. So I can see it, enjoy it, but I don't live within it. They had a big map, about three feet by five feet, showing the state of Maine. On that map, they had, uh, they have you know, different colors. This is in this is forest, and this is lakes and rivers, and lots of little brown areas. I've got the thing in front of me here. I've got a much smaller copy, but they have what they call primary locations, less than two miles from a public road, less than ten miles from a retail retail hub, less than two miles from a public road in towns and plantations and less than 700 feet from the normal high-water mark of MC3 lakes. That's Class 3 league lakes. They, uh, these are places that Loopsy thinks that Maine people should be able to build a house or a camp. Because that's development. Well, and these things are scattered all over the place. You know, way down there near Rumford, all the way up to uh, New Sweden, places like that. And many of them uh, border Canada. Then they show Washington County. I've spent a lot of time in Washington County, down east. And there's a bunch of places in Washington County where, according to to Loopsy, they could uh, 
you know, they, according to their plan, you could build a camp. Well, I've told the story in the past here a few times where where 419,000 acres were put into a conservation easement in Washington County. It's huge. It's 19 townships. Cut the economic heart right out of Washington County. And in, in that 19 townships, Lurk has designated, Loopsy, I'll, I'll never get out of the habit of using the term Lurk, but it's Loopsy now. Bigger, stronger, and meaner Lurk. Well, they, they went in and uh, lots of little places down in Washington County where you could build. And this map gives you the the indication that it might be okay to build there. So I I listened to him and you know gave him a few facts. And I I told him about the old Pinto rule. Well, these work people uh, are new people that have been brought in. They don't know the history. They brought them in because they don't know the history. So we uh, so I told them about the Pinto rule because they're talking about roads, public roads, and where you could build. And they have no clue. They don't understand that we have such a thing called mud time. Some of our dirt roads are impassable in the spring. And Lurk used to have what they called the Pinto rule because they had a, used to have a rule that says you can, if if your property is divided by a road, goes right up through the middle of it, goes up to the north, for example. Well, you can split the left side of the road into two lots, and you can split the right side of the road into two lots. And that was a rule. Well, property owners started to call every single skitter road up in northern Maine a road, a skitter trail. And there'd be ruts in it foot deep on each side. The Lurk established a rule. He said, if we can't drive our Pinto up there, it's not a road. <laughs> so... They had a, we call it the Pinto Rule. Lurk called it the Pinto Rule. I mean, this is an official state rule. If they can't drive a Pinto in that road, it's not a road. And if it gets too brushy, brush grows in dirt roads if you don't use the road. If you don't grade it, bush hog it, maintain the road, it will be a forest again. Main forests are self-rejuvenating. So, they got a big kick out of the Pinto rule that I talked about. And the guy says, can I use that term? I says, yep, you guys invented it. You can use it. It's just the previous generation. I go back two generations with Lurk. And uh, and I know the history. And they really, they when they're talking with somebody that knows the history, they get nervous. And many people in the state of Maine know the facts. And I mentioned, I said, you know, I said, up in the Loopsy Territory, I said, 15 years ago, there were over 18,000 people living in the unorganized townships. Now there were fewer than 8,000, and those 7,000-plus people that still live there are terrified of you people. Oh, they don't have any reason. They don't have any reason to be afraid of us. You know, we'll we'll be accommodating. Yeah. (laughs) Their accommodation is the reason that they've lost more than 10,000 people out of the unorganized territories. And other people in, in the room were, you know, startled and made nervous by my remarks. And and uh, <laughs> I mentioned the town of Drew. The town of Drew is an incorporated township. It still is today. They have about 34 people in Drew. And the state came in, and two-thirds of, the, of Drew used to be owned by International Paper Company. International Paper Company left Maine like so many other companies. It was driven out. Just choked them off, 
kilter off their economic opportunity and their ability to operate efficiently, and they left. The state of Maine came in and bought the land that International Paper owned in the town of Drew. Drew thirds of the town. Well, 30 people that lived in Drew at the time, you know, good tax, international paper, the fair value of that land. It's in tree growth, but they taxed them at a, low, at a low price because it was in tree growth. And and uh, when the state bought land, and then, of course, the IP would pay the taxes. When the IP got their check, sent their check to the town of Drew, on an annual basis, Drew was very happy because they got this money and they could survive for another year along with the taxes that everybody else in Drew paid. They didn't, you know, with, with a total population of 35 people and one of the families homeschooled their kids, so it didn't cost them anything to send those kids to school. They, uh, you know, they had a, a little fishing town. They only had four. One, one of the roads going through Drew was state roads. So the state plowed the road. Drew only had three short roads that they had to plow on their own. They hired a local guy with a pickup truck with a V-plow, and he plowed the roads for the town. And uh, they had, you know, trash pickup. All the trash down to Springfield. And somebody else would pick pick it up in Springfield and haul it down to Herman or Orrington. Anyway, when the state bought all the land that used to belong to IP, that's two thirds of the town of Drew. The state doesn't pay taxes. Out west, when the federal government owns a big chunk of a county, they they subsidized the county somewhat and it's called PILT. Everybody out west knows what PILT is. Maine doesn't know what PILT is. PILT is payment in lieu of taxes. P-I-L-T. Payment in lieu of taxes. So the federal government subsidizes some of these counties that are rural and isolated so that the county will maintain the roads that pass through federal land. Otherwise, they would just abandon the roads and the federal government would have to maintain the roads. So the federal government pays them to maintain the roads. And it also goes toward educating the children. And the other county services, like the jail. Most counties have jails. Sometimes two counties will get together and they'll share a jail. But basically... uh, they don't really need, each county doesn't need a jail because <laughs> except for holding a drunk at night until he sobers up in the morning and drive home, they uh, you know, they don't need a lot of jails in most places that are rural because most places that are rural, you know, carry sidearms. And an old Samuel Colt invented the revolver. Well, first he had muzzle-loading revolvers, and then, then came the, the forty-five caliber revolver with cartridges. And Samuel Colt is credited with reintroducing politeness to the American West. Because, you don't if a guy's wearing a, a forty-five Colt on his hip, you don't hassle him. Just not a good idea. <laughs> and the forty-five Colt became known as the peacemaker because once everybody was carrying 45 colts the number of arguments was substantially reduced that's a fact he was named the peacemaker Samuel Colt didn't name it the peacemaker the population named it the peacemaker because it created peace Talking with these people at Lurk, Loopsy, in the courthouse, Bangor, Maine. And they put on their presentation, they're showing all of these things, but they feel that Maine people should be allowed to build a camp. 
or a house or a subdivision. If you want to, you know, if you got a ten, you got a hundred acres, and you want to sell ten ten acre lots. You have to apply to the state to do that. Now, before September twenty third, nineteen seventy one, you didn't have to apply to the state. Want to do a subdivision? Do a subdivision. Sell a lot to your nephew. Sell a lot to your friend from Connecticut that comes up hunting. And uh, give a lot to your son. You know, whatever. You didn't have to ask any permission, anybody's permission, to sell your land. I mean, if you own six automobiles, you don't need somebody's permission to sell each of the automobiles. You don't have to get a car dealer's license to sell them. You just own them and sell them. Now, if you are going to get into the business of selling cars, then you need to get a license. The state wants to keep track of you. There's an awful lot of transactions that occur without a license. A lot of people buy and sell firearms as a hobby. They're collectors, and they'll buy a firearm that they think they can sell at a profit, and they'll sell that one and use that money to buy the, the firearm that they really want. And they collect old Winchesters or whatever. It's a hobby. All these firearms are just enjoyed for the for the beauty of them because they're precise, they're efficient, and uh, they're part of our heritage. People collect old old woodworking tools, not because they're more efficient than the modern tools, because it's what their grandfathers and their grandfathers used to build America. The, uh, I was an EMT, and we had a, a, a doctor who worked with us, and he was our advisor. And when we wanted to start an IV on somebody, you know, we used his protocol, and we, we were starting the IV under his authority. He has certified that it's okay for us to start an IV on this patient, save the patient's life. The doc can't be everywhere at the same time, and we have EMTs for that. And and he uh, he's a surgeon. And he takes out people's gallbladders and whatnot. <laughs> Years ago, my wife was the last person that he to remove the gallbladder from before they went started laparoscopic surgery. She gave him a hard time when she found out that this surgery could have been done with a scope and having two inch and a half long incisions in her abdomen to take out her gallbladder. Why didn't you tell me? The surgeon was a big guy. He had to get both hands in there to take out her gallbladder. So he made an incision that went from her side right around below her lower rib on the right, right there to the midline of her abdomen because he had to get both hands in there to take out the gallbladder. <laughs> she was really aggravated by the fact that he, he knew that the following week he was going to be doing it with a laparoscope. You could snap a lot gallbladder out of there in 15 minutes using a laparoscope, and it's a, it's a an hour, hour and a half surgery, and you got this huge wound that has to be has to be healed, and all these big stitches because you got to get both hands in there. <laughs> I I was a little irritated myself. I wish I'd known. I was said, we postpone it until next week. You're probably not going to have another gallbladder attack in one week, so just wait a week. We didn't have that opportunity. But there are EMTs out in the boondocks. They don't have an ambulance. So in order to, to uh, have a subdivision or do anything of, of significance in these 52% of the state of Maine that these people govern, 
you have to go through their procedure. And when I said that do not be reassured by this map, because they say there's lots of places in Washington County where you could build. According to them, if you know it, those places meet their criteria, but they know absolutely that nobody is ever going to build there again, because the whole two four hundred nineteen thousand acres, nineteen townships, is owned by Hancock Trust, which is the investment and retirement arm of Yale University. They have literally billions of dollars in their in their system. Huge. Harvard is the same way. Some of the big old classic Ivy League schools have lots of money and foundations and entities within the foundation. And they are part of of the uh, environmental industry taking land out of private hands in America and putting it into conservation easements or public trusts or one thing or another. It's like peeling an onion. There's so many layers to this thing. And I say it's like peeling an onion because you take off one layer and it just brings more tears. In New Hampshire, in Vermont, you're buying up old dairy farms. You got a farmhouse and a dairy barn, and they used to have 20 cows, maybe even 40 cows, and sometimes only 12 cows. And they'll buy up the farm, and Gramp and Graham will stay at the farm, and Gramp's got three cows left, and he's milking the cows. And eventually, you know, the cow uh, doesn't get bred again. And he's feeding the cow because she was a good cow. He's almost like a pet. And eventually, you know, there aren't any more cows. And the Nature Conservancy comes along, and they talk to Gramp and Graham because their kids don't want to come back to the farm and live there. There's no no employment. So they they sell the farm to the Nature Conservancy with a life estate. As long as they live, they can stay there, not make any payments to the nation, they no rent or anything. They can just stay for the rest of their lives and live out their lives. And the kids will come home for Thanksgiving and for the day. And maybe they'll even stay for the full weekend. It'll be a beautiful, sunny fall day, and they get a foot of snow. <laughs> but they, uh, Grandpa and Graham live out their lives, and they Nature Conservancy will call the kids you know, and say, well, you know, bump, take anything you want. So they'll, they'll take a couple of horseshoes. So they'll take some mementos from the house and one thing or another for them. And then, okay, you got it? You all set? Okay, see ya. Kids go down the road back down to Connecticut or wherever they go on. And the following week, the Nature Conservancy comes in with an excavator and they crunch the house. As soon as they get four to six inches of snow on the ground, they burn it. Just burn the contents of the foundation. And the fire goes out by itself. The fire department knows they're going to burn it. And then they come in there again with the excavator. And they fill the foundation in. <clears throat> you know, when they dug the foundation years ago, the dirt was spread out around the house and sloped away from the house. They recontour the ground, push in the old stone foundation, and cover it over, and they seed it down to the indigenous species of grasses and trees and brush. They put up a gate at the end of the driveway so nobody can drive in there. That's another 150 acres gone from our economy. Forever. This is what they want. Their stated goal is no human use. Think about that. No human use. And then they they had 
maps at this meeting Thursday. <clears throat> and they had a map of, of uh, Penobscot County in the Millinocket area. Now, Millinocket has been officially designated by the state of Maine as a core service community. You got Millinocket, East Millinocket, and Medway. And you've got a couple of surrounding towns like like Woodville and Mattawamkeag and Chester Wynn going down down the river, Penobscot River. And they show ponds there, like just west of Millinocket is Smith Pond. Well, Smith Pond is one mile from a development district, which is Millinocket. That's okay. You can build more camps on Smith Pond. It says so right on the map. But you can't. The only way you can build more camps on Smith Pond is to tear down the existing camp, which is a simple one-room camp, you know, sitting on field stones with hemlock logs as sills leveled up, pretty much level, and they put... put, uh, Floor joists across on the logs. Built this camp. It's probably 16 by 20, 16 by 30. My my camp is is 20 by 30. You know, people think of it as a big camp, but my camp was built 22 feet from the lake. It was legal. Doesn't hurt the lake a bit to have my camp 22 feet from the lake. And. The camp is, uh, you know, from my camp, you cannot see a light in any direction. And I told, I told those people down there before I, before I got started, so to speak. I own some old growth forest. I didn't tell them where it is. I don't want them coming looking at it. They might decide they like it. But I own some old growth forest. And the only thing I caught is. Small trees will get started, and they'll grow up to 20, 30 feet tall, straight up. And they'll run out of nutrition and sunlight and die because of the competition from the old mature forest is too much for the young young tree to survive long term. Those big old trees spread their seeds every year. And one of those big old trees dies and falls over. That creates a patch of sunlight, and you get a whole bunch of young trees grow up right there because you've got sunlight and nutrition right there. And the forest regenerates itself. There's a place up northwest of Millinocket called Big Reed. A little pond, reed pond, and it's in a valley. And the only way to get out of that valley is to pull the logs up over a ridge and down the other side to get it to a river or a road. Big Reed has never been cut. You walk through Big Reed, goes, I know where it is, and there's, it's not a town. And you can walk through Big Reed, and, and when I've, I've been in Big Reed, I don't go there very often. The mat of the, the floor of the forest is moss, and you can sink into that moss up to your ankles. And when I've been in Big Reed, I've always followed the footprints of another person. I don't I don't walk on moss. It's almost like a like a chapel in there. Beautiful. Untouched. There ought to be places like that in this world. But you shouldn't take 52% of a state and apply tyrannical rules to it where nobody can make a living. I told them that in the year 2020, half of the adults in the state of Maine are going to be over the age of 65. Our young people leave, many of them. And the ones that stay, we really appreciate, and we send business to them. If they're builders, we get them to build. And if they're welders, and loggers, we truck drivers, we really would like to have more young people have the economic opportunity to stay in Maine. Loopsy doesn't want them to stay in Maine. A lot of people want to live in rural Maine. 
out in the country on their own place. My dream. I live on 107 acres. When I was a teenager, I wanted to live in an old farmhouse in Maine on 100 acres of land. I do. When I was a kid, I was driven. I I had self-confidence. And I've told this before, but it's relevant to this show today. I was pulling out of the barn, pulling a manure spreader that I had filled, and the Blue Angels flew by. And at that moment, I said, you know, I would rather be a Navy pilot than drive this manure spreader. I'm going to find out how to do that. I did that. I'm sitting here looking up at a pair of Navy wings cut out, carved out of mahogany in the Philippines. It's four feet wide. One piece of wood. Filipinos call this wood Nara wood. We call it mahogany. Same wood. Hand carved. Navy wings. I bought it when I went uh, got through JEST uh, school. J-E-S-T is Jungle Environmental Survival Training. Had an instructor. You talk about living rural. These these instructors we had were up in the foothills in in the Philippines, way back from from towns. They've, the Navy has a place where they they teach jungle survival. It's at the end of a dead end road. From there you walk in on trails, and the people are, are called by the Filipinos, Negritos. Most people in the Philippines are Asians. They came to the Philippines hopping from island to island a long time ago. And they're Asians. And the Spanish arrived there in the 1500s and colonized several of the islands. There are a lot of tribes on the islands that did not want to be invaded by the Spaniards. They would kill the Spaniards, and they would eat them. They figure if you kill your enemy and you eat part of the enemy or all of the enemy, that it'll make you more powerful. And there are a lot of a lot of ethnic groups in our nation, in in America. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> we don't have too many cannibals in America. We had a few. Anyway. They, uh, this was part of their culture. They didn't want to waste any protein. When they had some available, they would just eat it. They had no compunctions about eating other human beings. So the Spanish simply they couldn't convert these people to Catholicism. That just didn't work. So they just left them. There's another subgroup in the Philippines called Negritos, and they're black people. They're real black. They came from Africa. Just like the Polynesians, some of the Polynesians, Pacific Islanders, came from South America. That's how they happened to get there. And by DNA, they can prove it. But these Negritos were were, uh, a cheerful, happy, confident people. They're totally immersed in their environment, and we learned a lot from them. It was a one to, it's a two week school and one of the weeks you spend in the jungle with these Negritos and they show you how to uh survive in the jungle. And there's bad stuff in the jungle. There's not snakes and bugs and stuff and you know, some things you just don't want to be around and they tell you how to how to dispatch the snake and they tell you how to eat the snake. But this one fellow uh, made knives. And knife was made out of a Japanese truck spring. They had no power tools. No saber, I mean, no uh, sawzalls or anything. And they they made they made bolo knives. And the handle is uh, the handle is uh, water buffalo horn. I still have it. It's a very sharp knife. And this Negrito is probably 35, 40 years old. 
And he says, my uncle killed many Japanese during the war. He says, no gun. <laughs> they were killed by by uh, bows and arrows, spears, and knives. These Negritos, who are very black people, wearing a black loincloth, they're really hard to see at night. And they'd sneak up on the Japanese, and they would kill them and disappear into the jungle. The Japanese did not want to get outside the perimeter of their their fort. They just they didn't mess with these Negritos. They'd shoot up the place, and if they could find a Negrito village, they would they would uh, destroy it. But they didn't kill very many Negritos. Interesting people. The people in northern Maine are interesting people. They're not too outgoing. They'll listen to you, speak with you, but they don't reach out to you. Just that they, it's a it's a caution that they have that's developed over time, and it's justified. They need to be cautious because there are people in this world that do not want them to live where they live. They know it. And I told the Loopsy people that the 7,000-plus people that still reside in the UTs are scared of you. They're terrified of you because they don't even get to vote for you. Well, at this point, when I began to lay it on hard and fast, factual, truthful information, the environmentalists in the room went nuts, (laughs) jumped up, screaming, yelling, waving their arms, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant. (laughs) This one guy, every time I make a point, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant not irrelevant to the people that live there. It's not irrelevant to the people that live there. This is a brutal, tyrannical organization. And they think that they've got the right to decide how people can live. Now, big cities are full of zones. And they got zones where you can do this. you got zones where you can do that. If it's the middle of a residential neighborhood, you can't put a gas station in a general store in the middle of a residential neighborhood that's declared to be residential, and that's the only thing you can do is live in the house, and you better not put out a yard sale sign in your front yard. They don't want you to have a yard sale. No, sir. You're going to have a yard sale. you got to go to the flea market, some other town, try to sell your stuff. They don't want you to do it in that neighborhood. There are people who just seem want to control other people. And there are people that don't want to be controlled. And they voluntarily separate themselves into societies. There are people that live around Washington, D.C., in the outer perimeter. Gated communities. You pull up to the gate, who are you, and what are you doing here? This is not open to the public. You say, well, I'm going to visit my sister. You want your sister's name, address, and your parents, grandparents, social security numbers, and they might let you in through the gate. People choose to live that way. People choose to live in condominiums, and they have a board that makes rules for the condominium. And if you buy a property in this condominium, the board can change the rules after you buy the property, and you're stuck. That's just the way it is. You're stuck. So people that live in the unorganized territories like the fact that it's unorganized. And it should be low hassle. And it used to be low hassle until February 23rd, 1971 when Lurk was created, the beast from the swamp. Because the swamp existed in Augusta almost as long as the swamp in Washington, D.C. The beast from the swamp is rearing its ugly head. And this vision plan of theirs is timed for 
all the pages departure from Augusta. He's going to be leaving Augusta. He may retire, but I don't think so. He's he's going to be involved in something. I know him, <laughs> and I like him. And this fall, we've only got one choice: will we have a prayer of preserving any freedom in the state of Maine? And that's that's Moody, Sean Moody, running for governor. Because Janet Mills is hand in glove with the with the beast from the swamp in Augusta. I'm not going to get into her this show. I'll get into that a little closer to the election. I know a lot about that family. So they had a really flashy presentation with a whole bunch of maps, and I've got some of these maps. They're 11 by 17, and they're going to have development zones. And not all residential development is located in a development zone. A group of single-family homes in a dense pattern can form the basis for rezoning other nearby areas. We've got neighborhoods in Lurk, and if they'll let you, they have an adjacency rule, so that if you want to build something, if you're really close to your neighbors, they'll let you. No, not everybody wants to be close to their neighbors. Some people like to live out by themselves. That's okay. We've always had people who live by themselves. I knew a hermit, and he built his own camp, and he brought his building materials in on snowshoes, pulling a toboggan. And there was no big, wide, four- or five-foot-wide trail. The toboggan would just barely fit between the trees. And I met, met him by accident. We had a chat. I didn't know if he was camping nearby. And he said, oh, he said, I live here. He said, well, good for you. You know, he was kind of surprised that I said that. This was back in 1970, approximately, since I met this guy. Patrick was his name. And he just dropped out of society. He got tired of being hassled. He was not a criminal, I don't think. I mean, he's a very pleasant individual, well-educated. But he just got tired of of the hassle, like Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett lived out in western Tennessee. And he was disappointed to see that he could see the smoke from a cabin on a, on the other side of the valley. And he packed in and moved his family further west. Didn't want to have a neighbor that close. And the rural people got together, and they said, "David, you got to go down. You got to go there. Go to Washington D.C. We want you to represent us." So he did, and he on the on the day that Congress convened at nine o'clock in the morning, nobody from Tennessee was sitting in that seat. And he opened the doors, marched down the center of the hallways. I am Davy Crockett from the backwoods. Killed the bear when I was only three years old, and he was wearing his buckskins and his coonskin hat when he went to, went to Congress. <laughs> he became a folk hero. The press had a ball with this guy. I got elected to the state committee in in uh, in Maine several years ago. I mean, more than two decades ago. I don't recall exactly the first time, but I was on the state committee, and I advocated for rural Maine. And I still do. But I got reelected to the state committee two years ago. And they invite you to, you know, they'll read off a list of names and they'll have you stand up so that they can see you. I mean, the moderator of the meeting, which is usually the, the uh, executive director of the state of Maine, or the chairman, chairman of the Republican Party in the state of Maine, will announce this new person. <clears throat> and you stand up and you kind of wave and nod your head and you sit back down. A lot of these new people are afraid to open their mouths. 
But when they recognize you, they announce your name, you stand up, and you recognize. Well, according to Robert's Rules of Order, you have an opportunity to speak right then. So I stood up. My name is Roger Eck, elder from Penobscot County, defender of liberty, guardian of freedom, and a fine judge of onion soup. Oh, God, he's back. (laughs) And they knew that I knew what I was talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. I simply have some opinion on some matter. I usually don't address it because you've got a hundred other people down there that also have opinions. And, but if there's something that's that's beneficial for rural Maine or detrimental to rural Maine, I will have something to say. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine worldwide on Talk Show Radio. We're getting up around show number two, 340. That's 340 hours of shows that you can listen to. Just Google, well, go to Talk Show, Google Talk Show, and up will come the, the network. And it's T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E. This is not some accent that I've got. That's what it is. People Google it and they try to, go, try to find Talk Show. S-H-O-W. Nope, it's S-H-O-E. And then you look for Northern Maine Landman, and there will be my smiling face. And you can look at that and listen to me on Talk Show Radio. God bless. Be safe.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.